Well, welcome to church, everyone, all of those who are watching online today. Um, we appreciate you guys adjusting with us as the Omicron variant of the coronavirus um, really has been kind of taken off in this last week here in our area. Um, we just felt that in an abundance of caution, we wanted to protect all you guys because we love you guys. So we appreciate you guys adjusting as we do online service for this week. But welcome. We're in part three of this new series for 2022 called New Year. And uh, some of you might feel guilty even as I say the title of this series because you've already abandoned all your New Year's resolutions and we're only like one week into this whole thing. And I get that. J just a thought, just thinking about this the other day, but do you think Jesus ever had New Year's resolutions? Or did he just look in the mirror every year and was like, good job, just keep it up? Just kind of wondered about that a little bit. Uh, probably he was, he was, you know, just keep on keeping on. But this series, New Year, is one with a little bit of twist on this idea of New Year's resolutions. Because especially in our culture, in our American culture, this is the season of self-improvement. That's what this time is all about. Self-improvement is basically when our, we ask ourselves this big question right here, and that is, what should I do about me? What do I need to do about me? How can I make me better? How can I get slimmer or stronger or out of debt? And as we discovered last week, you know, it's important for all of us to do these things. And I, and I, I agree with these things. I mean, I, I hope we do lose weight. I really do. I told you guys a couple weeks ago that my doctor told me this fall that I need to lose some weight as well. I, I hope we start eating better. I hope we all stay healthy this year in this crazy pandemic that's still going on. I hope we, we all live long and healthy lives. I'm all for that. I want that for all of you. I want us to be debt-free so that we can truly live a generous life. That's great. But while all that stuff is good, I think there's really a bigger and I would say even a better question that we should be asking ourselves. In fact, it's a question that if you've ever in your life had somebody do something for you when you were in need, it's because that person asked this better question. We've all benefited from the fact that somewhere along the way, Others have asked this question and they got outside of this kind of personal realm of a New Year's resolution and focusing on themselves. And they asked this better question instead. And the question they asked was this, what needs to be done around me? Not just what should I do about me, but what needs to be done around me? As they looked at their community, as they looked around their church, as they looked around perhaps their world, they asked and said, what needs to be done around me? And so last week, we, we posed this interesting idea that if you really want to become a better person, then you got to figure out how to do something to help make the world around you a better place. So the question we're going to begin asking today as we kind of narrow this down is, how do you know what you should do? And last week we looked at this incredible story from the Bible about this guy named Nehemiah. And in this story, Nehemiah got some information. And this information, it just like wrecked him. I mean, it shook him to his core. And so from looking at that story, we ended with this big question last week, which was this. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? 
And I told you last week that, that I wasn't expecting you to answer that question right away, but it was something that I wanted you to ponder and process maybe throughout this entire series. What breaks your heart as you look around your community, as you look around your church, as you look around our state, as you look around our country, there are lots and lots and lots of needs. As you look around our world, there are lots and lots of needs. And you can't meet every need. I mean, you're one person. You can't meet every person's need. But you may be able to meet someone's need. And by doing so, you have the ability to change someone's world. So as you think about all the needs, whatever they might be, what is the one thing that maybe you keep feeling your heart drawn to, that you keep feeling your heart leaning towards? And as you think to yourself, you know, something needs to be done about that, that you just can't get it out of your mind. For, for you, this one category, this one group, this one unmet need, I mean, it's emotional for you. It's passionate to you. You find yourself talking about it. Maybe you Googled it and you did some research on it. You might have looked around to see, is there anybody doing anything at all about this right now? What is that thing for you that breaks your heart? Is there something that, that you want to do something about to make a difference in this world? Now, that's a profound question, isn't it? And this isn't just a Christian thing, by the way. I mean, this is like an everybody thing. If you're alive you're going to need to be able to answer this question or at least wrestle with this question at some point in your life. What breaks your heart? But there's a big problem with this question. The problem with the question is this question to do something about it actually requires something of you. And we think, well, well I don't have the time. I'm just one person. What could I do? But the truth is, at the end of the day, if you decide to move, even in a small way in the direction of what breaks your heart, it's going to require something of you. It's going to require some time. It's going to require maybe some money. It's going to require a missed opportunity. You're going to have to sacrifice something else in your life. You're going to have to give something up. It's going to cost you something. And the problem with it costing us some life is that we are all by nature this right here. This was one of my kind of favorite candies as a little kid growing up. And it's a lifesaver. And by nature, you see, I'm a lifesaver. And you're a lifesaver. We don't want to give away our life. We don't want to risk our life. We don't want to, we don't want to give that up. Most of us will do everything possible to preserve our life and our time and our money. We, we are all by nature lifesavers. And the problem with the question of what breaks my heart is that at some point, if we want to do something in the world, if we want to be able to make a difference, we have to begin by letting go of some of this. My time, my resources, my money. We have to be willing to lay that down, my image, my advancement. So that's attention, isn't it? 
And some of us are, are more geared this way than others. But, but if you decide to lean in the direction of what breaks your heart, whether it's children in poverty or people who are being abused or people who need to, to hear about Jesus, when, when you find out what it is and you decide to get involved, it's going to cost you. And it's going to feel like you're giving away a part of your life. And as we wrestle with that tension, and again, I believe it's a tension that each and every one of us are going to need to wrestle with at some point in our lives. But as we wrestle with that tension, Jesus comes along. Jesus enters the scene. And he says something really provocative. He says, whoever devotes themselves to themselves will be left with nothing. And we're going to look at this passage in just a minute, but he basically says, whoever devotes themselves to just themselves, and it's all about me and mine and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to work on me, whoever does that will have nothing but themselves at the end. And so Jesus says, if that's all you have at the end of your life, your life is really a total loss. And in your attempt to preserve your life, in your attempt to be a lifesaver, What's going to happen is, in actuality, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose it. And here's how the account from the Bible goes. One day, Jesus is kind of going along, and there's this crowd of people who have surrounded him. And that's what Jesus did. I mean, wherever he went, he just drew crowds of people around him. So Jesus is surrounded by people, maybe sick people, smelly people, people with sores and, and disease, hoping to be healed. And, and, and all they want to do is they just want to get near Jesus. They just want to get close to Jesus. So just imagine for yourself, put yourself in Jesus' shoes, and you're surrounded by all these people, all these smelly people, okay? Maybe you're, you're in, the, in the middle of Walmart in your mind right now, in the middle of a, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and you're just uh, afraid to even get close to people, and you see all these people just around you. Well, that's kind of what Jesus went through like all the time, and all these people, they wanted to do something to him, and it started with the letter T. Can you guys guess what it is? They wanted to touch him. They wanted to reach out and actually place their hand on him because they were hoping that he would maybe do a miracle, that if they just could touch him, that maybe they would be healed. And so picture this, I, I kind of envision it a little bit like an episode straight out of The Walking Dead, right? Like a zombie movie. You've got all these sick, smelly people reaching their zombie hands out to try to touch him in this crowd. Everywhere he goes, this was his life, and he couldn't escape the crowds. And I think this is maybe possibly part of the reason why he spent a lot of his time doing his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, because then he could just jump on a boat and go a little bit out in the water and maybe have a little bit of time to have some space to get a break from the crowd. But anyway, large crowds just followed Jesus around and he kind of turns to them and he says, are you ready for this? He, he says to them, and, and this is one of the, the hardest verses in the entire Bible to process and swallow. This is what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So much for family relationships, right? Okay, note, 
New Year's resolution. Pastor said I should hate my family more because that's what Jesus taught. Some of you got excited hearing that right now. You were waiting for permission for that. You've been waiting a long time to tell these people off for years. Thanks for the permission, Pastor. But time out. He's not talking about hate as an emotion. In fact, there are other parts in the New Testament where his followers say that if you hate somebody, you're not really a follower of Jesus. And in fact, this is, this is how people will know that you're my disciple, by how you love one another. That every person you're ever eyeball to eyeball with matters to God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, they should matter to you. So he's not talking about hate as the emotion. He's talking about the willingness to allow God to be first position in your life. That God should hold that first position in your life instead of your parents, instead of your spouse, instead of even yourself. Jesus is saying that the number one decision maker in one's life, the one, the one who's going to be in complete control, the one who's going to call the shots, needs to be Jesus if you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus. Because to be someone's disciple is to declare that person as your leader. To become a disciple is to say, I choose to follow you. And so Jesus says to the crowd, who's going to call the shots ultimately in your life? Are you willing to decide once and for all that I'm not calling the shots anymore in my life? Are you willing to submit your life to Jesus and to make him number one, to give him first place? And in this moment, those of us who love New Year's resolutions that are all about us, and again, I'm not, I'm not against them. I hope we lose weight and get out of debt. But suddenly Jesus points us to this daunting, intimidating tension. And essentially he says this. He says this. He says that following Jesus is about self-denial, not just self-improvement. That being a follower of Jesus, that following Jesus is about self-denial, not just self-improvement. And that's hard for me. And that's hard for you, right? I mean, our culture is driven to some extent by self-improvement. But Jesus says, hey, I'm not against self-improvement any more than I'm against your father or your mother or your children or your spouse. I'm not against any of those people. I'm not against you having good relationships with those people. I'm not against you trying to be the best that you can possibly be and work on yourself. But you've got to decide once and for all who's going to be number one in your life. Who's going to call the shots in your life? And Jesus says, you can't truly follow me and always have mommy and daddy call the shots for the rest of your life. Next week, I'm going to talk with you guys about the big next step, the biblical commandment of baptism. That big next step after a person receives Christ to go public with that decision. And over the years as a pastor, I've seen so many people. I can't tell you the number of people I've seen afraid to get baptized because of what mommy might say. And I'm not talking about children, like students, middle school students, elementary school students, high school students who are watching right now. You, you are called in scripture to honor your parents, to honor thy mother and father. And that means including them in major decisions in your life. But I'm talking about grown adults. I've seen grown adults afraid to get baptized and take that next step to be obedient to God 
because they're worried about what their parents might think or what their spouse might think or what their coworkers and friends might think. Jesus says, who's going to be first in your life? And he says to this crowd, hey, I'm all for self-improvement. But following me, being my follower, is really more about self-denial than it is about self-improvement. And then he said this in verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And at that point, the what's in it for me people, I mean, they quit. <laughs> the what's in it for me people, they left the meeting. I mean, they, they walked away. The crowd started to thin out. They walked away and they went and got a gym membership at Planet Fitness, right? Because that would be easier than following Jesus. Now, here's the thing, and this sounds like such a downer. In fact, when, when you read the gospel and you get to these verses, it's like, whoa, time out, Jesus. Like, like can, we, can we just do a miracle right now? Can you tell a parable? I like stories. How about a story, Jesus? How about we pray? Can we do prayer instead? How do I get God to answer my prayers? Show me those kind of verses, Jesus. We don't like the stuff that says die to, your, die to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But what Jesus was saying was, I have something so much better and so much greater for you. I am calling you out of your small little life into a greater story and a greater life with me. But you will never be able to say yes to my better offer until you learn to say no to yourself. And this isn't about self-improvement. It's about self-denial. It's not so much about you becoming a better version of you because you decided to, to focus on you. It's about becoming a new creation because you've decided to focus on Jesus and make him first. So he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And then he goes right to the heart of our struggle in verse 24. And he says this, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever wants to save their life, well, well, of course I want to save my life, Jesus. I'm a lifesaver. You know, that's what I do. I spend a lot of money and time and energy and resources protecting my life, trying to keep me healthy, trying to keep me safe, trying to keep me alive, especially right now in a global pandemic. And Jesus isn't against any of that. But he says, whoever lives every single day and their ultimate priority is just themselves, that I would do just about anything to protect me and preserve me. He says, if that's your approach to life, ultimately, you're going to lose at the end. And the very thing you've spent your life trying to protect and trying to hold on to, at the end, it's going to be lost. It's going to be gone. You're going to lose it the very thing you've tried to protect. But then he gives an invitation and he says, but whoever loses their life for me, whoever's willing to say, Jesus, you can have first place in my life. Whatever you want, the answer is yes, in advance. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever it might be, my answer to you is yes. I'm giving you first place. Jesus, your way, not my way. You're first in my life over my parents, 
over my kids, even over my spouse, yeah, even over myself. He says, whoever loses their life for me will save it. But this is a decision. It's a resolution. It's a choice that we all have to make. See, here's the bottom line. Here's what we struggle with. And maybe this is something you've wrestled with for a while. But here's the deal. As long as it's all about me, I can't really be about following Jesus. As long as it's all about me, I can't really be about following Jesus. As long as it's about me, I can never say yes to the things that are outside of me. And if you decide to really wrestle with this question of what breaks your heart, you will ultimately be led away from you. At some point, you'll have to walk away from you. And so Jesus says, left to yourself and left to myself, we will live for just ourselves as lifesavers. But if you live for yourself at the end of your life, it's going to be a total loss because you'll have nothing to show for it but you. And you don't want that. And I don't want that. We don't want at the end of our, our 40s or 50s or 60s or 80s and 90s to have this wrinkle-free life and everything is secure and it looks like everybody envies us, but at the end of the day, it's just about us. We don't want that. Why? Because you are not enough for you to live for. And I am not enough for me to live for. And then Jesus says this, and I love this, in Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe you've heard that verse before. I mean, we've talked about this verse before at church. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, now this is the fascinating thing about this passage, and this is what makes Jesus so brilliant I mean, only the son of God could come up with brilliant stuff like this. If you've ever had questions about whether Jesus was who he really claimed to be, just start reading the New Testament and read, you know, the red letters that Jesus wrote, the things that he said. Like, look at those passages and you will see how brilliant he is. And only the son of God could come up with stuff, such brilliant stuff like this. And this is one of those brilliant insights of Jesus, that where your treasure is, your heart is, which means wherever you're sending your money, Wherever you're sending your time, wherever you're putting your resources and your energy, part of your heart is going there. It also means that if you want to change the direction of where your heart is, you have to change the direction of where you're putting your money and your time and your energy. It works both ways. See, generosity is how you say yes to what's important to you. So how do you choose where to be generous? How do you choose where to give your time, your money, your resources? Well, here's the answer. You give from a grateful heart and you give from a broken heart. You give from a grateful heart and you give from a broken heart. In other words, what are you grateful for? And what is your heart just breaking over? And this is why anybody who loves their local church and believes in the mission and vision of their local church should give to their local church. And if you don't love your local church, find one that you love, whose mission you believe in, and start to give there, because it's scriptural. Give of your resources. Give of your time. 
Give of your passion. Give of your energy. And just imagine if you would, if every single person who considers this their church home, if all of you who are watching right now and maybe consider yourself to be an owner of this church actually lived out what Jesus taught about generosity, if every one of us chose generosity and gave God first place in our lives and in this area of our lives, there would be more than enough money and resources and volunteers to accomplish all the things that God wants us to do in our communities, in our state of Maine, and even in our world. But as long as we fool ourselves into thinking that we're generous because of some random acts of giving, we're in trouble. Generous people have a plan, and they give to things that they're grateful for, and they give to things that they're heartbroken over. That's what they do. One last thing that I want to address, and then we'll, we'll wrap up for today. But, but as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the beginning of the New Testament, as you read the story of Jesus, the center of religious life for the ancient Jews was the temple. That was the center of religious life. And the temple had this really cool thing that we don't have anymore. It was known as the temple tax. So they didn't take tithes and offerings like we do here. Okay, they, don't have, they didn't have online giving. They didn't have any of that stuff like we do. The Jewish people just paid a tax to the temple. In ancient times, all over the world, Jewish people, no matter where they lived, no matter how far away from the temple they lived, they actually sent money to Jerusalem to support the work of the temple. And this was just ingrained in their culture. But for those outside their culture, when we think about taxes... Like, that's not a positive thing, right? Show of hands, how many of you are excited about tax season right now? If anybody next to you raised their hand, you should slap them because they're crazy, right? Even the tax accountants probably didn't raise their hand right now. Well, well in the first century, the Apostle Paul actually ran into this same dilemma. See, Paul was planting churches all around the Mediterranean rim. And as he's planting these non-Jewish, these Gentile churches, he begins to teach them about generosity, how to support the work of their individual church and the big C, the large church universal. And he realized, you know what? These Gentile churches, they're doing okay financially, but, but we need to do something to help our brothers and sisters out who are in Jerusalem, where the church was being viciously and violently persecuted. They were in great, great need at the church in Jerusalem. And so these Gentile Christians in all these Mediterranean churches, they were grateful to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem because those Jewish brothers and sisters were the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were the ones who collected the stories of Jesus and shared the good news of what God had done in the world, that God has sent his son, Jesus, to save the world, to save us from our sins. And so these Gentile Christians were heartbroken over the plight of their Jewish brothers and sisters that lived in Jerusalem, and they were all in. I mean, all in, they pushed all the chips on the table when it came to the mission and vision of the church to share the incredible good news of Jesus throughout the world. 
And so the Apostle Paul, he, he pens one of these letters to the church in Corinth about how to deal with this whole money collection thing at church. And so as we end today, I just want to read this to you because it's very, very practical for those of you thinking about making God first in this area of your life in this new year, about making God first in everything, even your finances. And if you've ever wondered why Christian churches collect tithes and offerings each week. It's because 2,000 years ago at the birth of the Christian church, this is what the apostle Paul taught about being generous and about making God first in this area. 1 Corinthians 16.1, here's what he says. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So Paul's writing to a church in Corinth and he says, look, I'm telling everybody the same thing at all these new Christian churches that are being planted. Here's how followers of Jesus should handle this whole generosity and money thing. And this is so interesting. Remember, again, there's no checking accounts. There's no online giving. There's no real banking system. If you were fortunate enough to have money, you just kept it hidden someplace in your house, okay? And essentially, the economy of this culture, it ran on, on coins, on copper coins and silver coins and gold coins. And so here's what Paul says. This is so interesting. He says this picking up in verse two. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. In other words, if you want to be generous people, if you want to make God first in every area of your life, including your finances, it doesn't just happen. You have to have a plan. You have to have a clear direction. Okay, Paul, we want to be generous. We know that everything we have, 100% of everything we have comes from God. We get that. We know that we can't outgive God. So how much should we give? And how do we give? Should we wait and see how the spirit leads? No. Should we see how annoyed we feel with church that week? I don't really like the pastor's message this week or, you know, the worship team, they're they're not really playing the style of music that we like. Because Paul, you know, I'd give more if they played a few more hymns. And if we cracked a hymnal open every now and again, I would, I would give more money. And Paul's like, are you serious? No, that's the opposite of generosity. That's called selfishness. That's focusing on what you want. And so Paul says on the first day of each week, plan to set aside a sum of money. When you're starting your week, look at how much you've earned. Look at what you've, what you've done, what you've taken in, and take a percentage of that and set it aside. To which all of us would then ask, okay, Paul, well, how much? I mean, how much do we give? And Paul understood that these Gentiles, that these non-Jewish Christians didn't have an understanding of the temple tax. And they didn't understand that a tithe was 10% of what you earned and that the Jewish people would return that to the temple. So he just said, set aside a sum in keeping with your income. Well, Paul, you got to be more specific. Nope, that's all I'm saying. So it's a percentage? Yeah, it's a percentage. Okay, but give us a number. And Paul says, look, I'm not going to give you a number. But how grateful are you to those Christians in Jerusalem? And how brokenhearted are you over their plight? How grateful are you for what God has done in your life? 
And how much do you want to see people in your life, your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your classmates, how much do you want to see them move from death to life and get connected to Jesus? Based on that, set aside a sum. But how much, Paul? I'm not going to tell you. Pick a percentage in accordance to your income and your faith. This is what Paul taught these brand new Christians. How grateful are you to God and how brokenhearted are you? See, that's what generous people do. They don't have to be begged to be generous. They don't have to be shown sad pictures and guilted into giving. They have predecided, and they give where they're grateful and they give to what breaks their heart. It's that simple. So let me recap one last time and then we'll land the plane for today. If you want to make God first in everything in this new year, if you want to become more generous in this new year, you're going to need to ask, what am I grateful for? And what breaks my heart? That is where generosity begins. And when you begin to do this, everything changes. I mean, everything changes. Because here's the deal. The people in this church who have already made that change, it's done something remarkable to them. It has taken their faith to incredible new levels. It's blown them away. It's given them real joy as they've broken free from the crazy cycle of greed and debt and worry and consumption. So in this new year, instead of just focusing on self-improvement, where we ask the question, what should I do about me? How do I make myself better? Why not instead ask a bigger question and a better question? Why not ask what needs to be done around me and what breaks my heart? And instead of making ourselves first, what if we choose in this new year, in 2022, to make God first in every area of our life and ask, what am I grateful for? And what breaks my heart? And then, and then, begin to live out a generous life. Can we pray together? Let's pray, church, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you today for this really hard teaching by your son, Jesus, where he taught us that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life and makes God first will truly save it. Father God, I pray that you would give us wisdom to know what to do with that and then the courage to actually take action, to make a course correction, to make a life change so that we can step out of the smaller story of us to the greater story of you. Father, we also thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his teaching on generosity, that we are called to give from a grateful heart and from a broken heart. And my prayer today is that there are going to be some people in our church community who maybe haven't taken this step yet, but they're going to say, God, I love you so much. And in this new year, God, I want you to be first. I want to give you first place in every area of my life, including 
this issue of generosity and my finances. Because the mission of my church and the vision of my church, it's something that touches my heart. And God, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me, that you saved my life. And God, what breaks my heart is that there are people all around me who don't know you and who don't know your son and they need you. And God, I want our church to be a place that shines a light, that changes lives, that moves people from death to life. I want to invest in something that's going to have eternal consequences, that's going to matter a hundred years from now and a thousand years from now. So God, I want you to have first in everything. God, I pray that you would challenge some of us today as we continue to think about and wrestle with this question, what breaks my heart? And God, I want to thank you in advance for what you're doing in the minds and hearts of your people today. We love you, God, and we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we close this service. Let's uh, continue to worship and sing with the worship team. God bless.